and welcome to On Opinion, the Palia podcast. I'm Turi Bunte. We live in opinionated times. Culture wars, identity politics, polarization. Everyone has an opinion. But do we know where our opinions come from? Do we know why we think what we think? In each episode, I'll talk to experts across all disciplines to help us understand the nature of opinion, how we form ideas, why we argue, and what that means for society. We're thrilled to be talking to Hisham Khadrawi. Um, Hisham is the Director of Operations at Geneva Call. Geneva Call is an independent NGO which promotes international humanitarian law and human rights among non-state armed groups. Hisham, it's great to speak to you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much, Tori, for the invitation. Hisham, the, fir- the first thing I'd like to do is to ask you to explain a little bit what Geneva Call is and, and what it does. Give us a bit of history. Thank you. Geneva Call, we are uh, an organization that has a strictly humanitarian mandate. We are based off Geneva, but we have field offices in 15 uh, countries worldwide. Um, our main objective is to make sure that civilians trapped in conflicts are basically spared from violations against their own rights, against their life, that they have access to healthcare and that they are not subject to uh, rape or forced recruitment. Um, and the way we do it is very unique, if I can say, uh, with regard to the, all the classic humanitarian landscape. We try to approach those that, in conflict, are mostly causing these violations. Uh, in today's conflicts worldwide, we mostly have non-international armed conflict, which basically uh, involve non-state armed groups against states or non-state armed groups fighting against each other. We chose since 20 years to try to engage, to approach these non-state armed groups, these illegal entities that for most of the people worldwide um, is even hard to conceive talking to. And you try to approach them in a very objective manner without judging. And you try to convince them to basically change their behavior, to basically understand better uh, what is international humanitarian law and to try actually to seek to make concrete changes for the benefit of the population. We believe that by trying to approach those who are directly involved, we may see a change after all in, uh, in having wars that are bas- basically more respectful for the civilian population. Hisham, that's extraordinary. Thank you for the overview. In the context of Palia, um, the reason that I wanted to talk to you is because, of course, you're going into some of the most fraught situations around and trying to convince armed angry and violent groups to abide by a set of abstract ideals um, that you're promoting to them in terms of negotiation in terms of um, empathy in terms of bridging the divide um, you can't get more extreme an example of uh, uh, than, than what Geneva call and then what than what you do so I'm, I'm thrilled to be talking to you in this hyperpolarized time um, to remind all of us that there is polarized, you know, conservative and liberal, Democrat, Republican, Labour, Tory. Um, there's polarized, and then there's um, armed groups um, and, and and civil war. So Hisham, thank you so much for talking to us. Give us a sense of the kind of organisations that you're dealing with, the kind of the kind of armed groups that you've had to engage with. 
I can say that um, it's hard to to answer directly to to your question because uh, we have as many armed groups as we have type of conflicts, various communities, different countries, different cultures. Armed groups are actually the mirror of the communities that are located and found in all this in, in all this context. We have armed groups that actually believe that they should replace the state and as a, and act as such. We categorize them as quasi-state armed groups, um, the ones that uh, already have like ministers, they have departments, they have justice, they have prisons, uh, they have as well uh, services to populations that sometimes even are better than the ones provided by the state in contexts where there is a, a war raging. Um, we have as well armed groups that are actually the mirror of the communities. They are like the, the defenders of the communities that they are, that they are fighting for, um, the ones that are the ethnic-based armed groups such as we found in Myanmar, for example, uh, they are defending their own communities, they are defending a way of life, particular dialect, and of course they have different means and actions of the first category. We have as well a type of armed groups that we categorize as the radicalized armed groups, the ones that believe that the, let's say, the law that is respected and applied worldwide uh, should not apply to them because uh, they are at the margin of society. And these radicalized armed groups, as we found in the Islamic State group, for example, or some groups in Sahel um, and many other places, uh, have their own set of laws. They have their own rules to follow. And they basically reject any other type of law. And this is extremely hard because you have to basically convince them that there is a bridge between what they believe and what the other ones believe, because at the end we have a sense of communal understanding of what is a civilian and what is respect. Um, we have as well armed groups that are supporting state forces. Uh, usually uh, in the mind of the people, an armed group is an opposition armed group, a guerrilla type. But we have many uh, illegal armed entities that are actually supporting state action in a, in a particular civil war. And you have sometimes a hybrid uh, mix between uh, state support and an armed group. So it's, the picture is extremely diverse and complex as the world is. And this is why we have to, to be extremely careful when we, when we decipher this, uh, this situation to, to engage armed groups on the ground. Amazing. So just to just to go through that typology again, in my head, what popped was quasi-state armed groups would be something like um, the Kurdish groups in in eastern Syria or the FARC in Colombia that for many years sort of dominated a huge area of uh, of land there. The the local hyper community based armed groups would be like, as you said, Myanmar, potentially even ETA in the Basque country that closely re closely represent a specific community. The third would be um, armed groups that sort of exclude themselves from the standard uh, humanitarian umbrella or sort of the idea of universal rights as they expressed. You described, um, we might talk about IS or Al-Qaeda as an example of that. And the fourth was these armed groups that work with, um, work with the state. One might say, for example, that Hezbollah in Lebanon is, an, is, is in part allied and in part against uh, the state of Lebanon itself. Is that roughly a, a, a sort of a decent typology of the, the four types you've just described? 
this is very correct. Uh, you really uh, pictured well the the complexity of this, and we have uh, we can have more and more typologies. We can even speak about cyber arm groups. Um, of course, next week I will have an event as well on cyber warfare and arm groups, and uh, we have maybe in arm groups that are only in the virtual space causing as well massive damages, and this would require a study in itself. Uh, so. Armed groups are basically trying to, to copycat states and usually, unfortunately, to take what was the worst side, but as well trying as well to, to evolve according to the various situations of the particular conflict. And we have armed groups that are joining uh, umbrella entities, um, getting together, splitting again. So it's a very fluid environment and is, is even more fluid in the past, I would say, two decades. And I just wanted to take one uh, statistic that is very, for me, striking. Um, in the past six years, we saw more armed groups created than in the past 60 years of conflict. This is just to to show you the the density of the um, of the of the equation. I mean, uh, in a conflict like Syria, in the beginning of the conflict in the 2014 2015, we saw um, no more than 1,300 armed groups fighting uh, in a given time in the uh, in the country. So what is the reason for this mass pro proliferation of armed groups around the world in the last six years? Is it mostly tied to Syria? Is it, is it more macro? Is it something to do with climate change? Is it to do with globalization? What, what, what's going on? It's very interesting. You, you actually um, hinted on, on three, I would say, arguments that, that, is, that are supporting this, uh, this proliferation. Um, when I take the, the, the example of Syria, Syria is basically the, the conflict where we saw globalization as its best, uh, with um, regional powers being involved, with international powers being involved. And we saw as well what we are seeing in other conflicts when we have state entities uh, creating or sometimes supporting armed groups to fight uh, on their behalf uh, on the ground. Uh, we have less and less uh, um, wars between states, it's something from the past, from before the Cold War, and the, cold, and the end of the Cold War really launched the era of armed groups, where we have armed groups basically um, fighting uh, and states being behind, having more hidden role, and this created a lot of uh, a, lo a lot of issues because to whom you speak at the end, who is responsible at the end of the of the of the action. Climate change as well has a lot to play because climate change uh, provoke huge consequences uh, in any country, but especially in, conflict, in, in countries where conflict is happening. Uh, the drought, for example, that provokes massive displacements in Syria, in South Sudan, in the Sahel region. Um, it provokes as well uh, a lack of economic of, of opportunities uh, sorry for uh, many, many young uh, people and men that used to work in the, uh, in the field or as uh, uh, cattle herders. And this creates basically opportunities for illegal entities to create uh, these type of armed groups and fight, and as well the legitimation, the, the sorry, the legitimacy, the legitimacy, sorry, to uh, to fight. Um, globalization as well brings uh, more and faster connections between uh, states, 
and as well between non-states. So you have non-state armed groups that communicate, exchange expertise, weapons. Uh, it's a whole network on its own. And I just want to take one example that will illustrate this globalization. We wanted actually to, to engage an armed group in Colombia. And this armed group was extremely hard to talk to. They were very, let's say, uh, suspicious of any foreigners trying to talk to them. They say that, you know, they're all, you all come from the West and you have the hidden agenda, the CIA is with you and all, this, uh, all these words that, that we hear. And how did we negotiate it? We basically talked to an armed group which was located in the Middle East that had the same mentality and shared the same values and they were communicating, communicating to each other actually. And this armed group in the Middle East basically sent some messages to the leadership of this armed group in Colombia. And thanks to that, we were able basically to directly engage with this group. So just to show you the, the, the extent of this globalized communication that we are witnessing today. That's extraordinary, Hisham. Um, so yes, Geneva Call is taking a single message which is respect for universal human rights to a multiplicity of groups in different geographies with completely different cultures. Your work, therefore, of negotiation is extraordinarily difficult and extraordinarily diverse. And that's, I think, what I really want to talk to you about today. So tell me, how does the journey work of convincing somebody who is on a very, very different path, whether it's around the use of child soldiers, the use of civilians as shields, all the various different things which you guys at Geneva call are trying to stop happening. How do you, how do you turn somebody? How do you turn a, a group um, as radicalized as one which has taken up weapons? Yeah, thanks, uh, thanks for, for for this question. I mean, it's um, it's a long journey, as you say, and you actually said the right word. It's a journey. If someone thinks that uh, by just clicking in or clapping in the hand, we can open, let's say, a channel of communication between an armed group member or leader and someone external to this armed group, I mean, is wrong. Uh, it's an extremely, I would say, sensitive um, matter that requires a lot of preparation beforehand. And I think it's something that we... I need to communicate is uh, it's not something that uh, that is light that is a given I mean it's something that is that we need to work on we work a lot with local communities and I just maybe want to to highlight one story just to explain you maybe the the mechanism uh, of the behind uh, this work be behind this disengagement I just want to to take one context, it's the context of the DRC, is the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, this country, unfortunately, uh, has seen war since four decades, more than four decades, 40 years. Um, it's a civil war. We basically have the state forces fighting against a myriad of non-state armed groups, most located on the eastern side of the Congo, which is border with Rwanda and Burundi uh, as other countries as well. Um, this eastern part of the Congo are called the, the Kivus, northern southern Kivus. And just in these two districts, we have not less than 130 armed groups fighting. 
controlling territories, controlling populations, controlling mines, uh, doing businesses. Um, so this is uh, the terrain where we basically work since now six years. And I just want to highlight one particular district here, which is in the Northern Kiev, when one story you had with one armed group. This armed group actually was recruiting children. We knew that, the communities knew that because they were forced to send their children to the ranks of these armed groups and rather than going to schools. We have a lot of organizations that had the information, but it was very hard for, for anyone to basically try to, to speak with them. They were very, let's say, far away from any town, any urban centers. At Geneva Call, we thought about what would be the best way to try to talk to them. So what we did, we tried to say, let's understand where they are where they are living. This armed group was controlling a vast territory in the jungle. We have mountains and jungles there. It's a very hostile environment, far away from roads, uh, from the cars. And to understand better the way they live, we have to, to put ourselves in their shoes. So what we did, we talked with one local NGO. Uh, there are human rights NGO, Congolese human rights NGO that are from the community of this armed group, from the same community. And we trained, we trained this uh, local NGO on our own mechanism, on IHL, on human rights. And we basically asked someone, can you spend a couple of months with the armed groups, live with them, understanding them, talk to them? And this person went and spent a couple of, couple of months even more in the jungle, talking to them, talking about what we do, very indirectly, and he understood, he lived with them, he understood basically the hard life. And then the armed group started to realize that there is an, a Swiss NGO that actually doesn't come with a big four by four, doesn't come with big publicity, but just want maybe to understand uh, their own side of the story. And after that, we basically had a mission where I took part of it, and we basically went to the headquarter, far away in the mountain. It was a test by the armed <laughs> group leader. So we basically took the four by four, we drove one day, we stopped in one small village, we took then motorbike, we drove eight hours in impossible roads. Sometimes there were no roads. I think I fell almost like four times in, in, in like mud and it was like holes everywhere. I mean, it was a disaster. It was rainy season. It was just disgusting. And they, they made it on purpose that we went to see them on rainy season, just to give you the difficulty. And then we stopped in a place, we slept in a shack. And then the third day we walked. Oh, we walked. We walked for, uh, I would say, six hours. Six hours we walked there and we, we reached um, the mountain where the armed groups was located. It was their headquarter. They could not even believe that we reached them. They said at the beginning, how did you were even able to be there? And after that, we stayed one night. We discussed for the whole night. I didn't talk about humanitarian law. I didn't talk about human rights. I just asked questions. What is your life? What did you do, what did you do before? The commander was a, was a teacher, was a teacher that was displaced by, by previous fighting. And then his other uh, lieutenant was an engineer. A third one was someone work, uh, fighting before with the army uh, of the state. So I tried to understand better their stories. And the next day we explained, look, 
you know that you have children in your ranks. You know that by, by having that, you are causing troubles within your own communities. You are weakening them. What is the best solution then? You want to fight for your community or you want to fight only for yourself? And after that, they started to, to explain that they have no choice because they need young people to fight. They need young people to wage the war. So I told them, look, you need young people as well, maybe to have better education, to do good for communities, to improve your, your economic situation. Maybe as, as well, it's better off. And as well, I said, if you want to be part of a dialogue at some point, maybe the state, maybe other actors, do you want to be seen as the violator or the armed group that try to improve its behavior. And we discussed, we discussed, and after that they, they accepted to start training with us on prohibition of child recruitment, on protection of education. And we had four to five days training of all the lieutenants. They asked questions, they challenged us. We did it actually uh, in, in the jungle. We had some couple of trees to, for, for the shade. We did one training under the rain, but we stayed with them. We stayed with them. And after some time, some months, we got a call from our contact on the ground. And they said that the group actually was ready to release 78 children from their ranks. They understood and they are ready to make a first gesture. And this was extremely appreciated by the communities by the families and they saw a different way actually from from the behavior that, that they had before to the behavior that they are trying to have uh, with us being there to basically support as well their changes hisham that's a an extremely moving story quite apart from being terrifying um in the work that geneva call does and that you've discussed in the past you articulate three core principles to the negotiation piece, to this, you know, the, the abstract rendering of what you've just described in story format. You, saw, you talk about ownership, localization, and contextualization. Can you break down the story you've just told around the DRC into those three pieces? So what's going on there? What were you doing? How do you un identify what you did sort of in an abstract sense? Thanks a lot. No, we, we really believe in, in these three principles that, is guiding, that are guiding uh, our work. The ownership, localization and contextualization. The ownership first. The ownership is actually the belief that you actually own the rule that is not imposed on you. And to give you an example for this particular group in the DRC, but it applies as well to, to all the groups that you are talking to, before coming to them and telling them you should respect IHL, which is international humanitarian law or law of war and human rights, um, before, instead of telling them you have to respect these, these laws because in 1949 in Geneva states ratified the Geneva Conventions and it applies everywhere to everybody, they don't care. To be frank with you, they don't care about for 1949. They don't care about Geneva. They have they were not even been there. Armed groups are not, uh, let's say, consulted to any creation or development of law because, of course, they are illegal entities. So they are far away from these foreign bodies. So what we do, we try to make bridges. We tell them, okay, do you have your own rules? And of course, they have. Any organized armed group has 
internal rules, policies, regulations. They, they can be extremely simple to very complex uh, set of legislation. So we ask them, okay, give us your own rules. Let's read them. So we read their own regulations and we saw that there was no mention of minimum age for recruitment. So for the, all the commanders in the field, they had no limitations to recruit children. So what did we do? We tell them, look, we can provide you, we can revise your own rules. We can make sure that they're actually compatible with what exists outside. So you're part as well of this international community. Here you create the sense of ownership. Okay. They, you, you tell them that you belong to something. When we included this provision of minimum age of recruitment, not below 18 years old, then it was much easier to move forward into negotiating release of children. So that's ownership. And I think that, that makes, that makes lots of sense. Yeah. yeah. Tell me about localization. Yeah. When it, when it comes to localization, it's exactly what we did with our, with our partner. We tend to partner with what we call grassroots uh, community organizations. We tend to approach and to work with organizations that are not only from the country, but you have many, many uh, local organizations that actually don't leave the capital cities or the main urban centers. We try actually to go to the local organizations that are from the communities, the grassroots ones, the ones with not a lot of funds, not a, not a lot of means, but a lot of respect and a lot of understanding of the specific context. And here, when we say localization, we try basically to work with local person that wants to even improve his, his own understanding or her own understanding of IHL, international humanitarian law, or human rights. So by working hand in hand with local grassroots communities, we basically show to the armed group that we work as well, as well in sense of improving as well the, the culture and the information of community members that live in their territories. That what we try to do is not only to the armed group, but is as well geared towards uh, all the local actors from the communities. It can be youth associations, women associations, any grassroots communities. So this lo localization effect is very important because we basically try to have a canvas of um, people of influence uh, that actually receive our trainings, receive as well, uh, let's say, uh, our engagement to make sure that armed groups feel as well that we are part of this local uh, uh, informal sector. Isham, this sounds a lot like a, a shift away from uh, opponent to partner. It's not that you're, it's not that you've taken their side. It's that you are part of a network of things, network of organisations which understand some of their objectives and there is a sort of a shared objective around community support or whatever it might be. So you don't frame yourself as an opponent, you frame yourself as a, more, of a, more as a partner. This is very correct, and this is really this thin line where we have always to be very careful in, first of all, how we are perceived by the armed group, by the communities, by the state, by other actors. We are not here to fight, we are not here to, to say you are bad, we, which we're not here as well that you, to say that you are good. You are an armed group that is waging a war and you have to respect the rules. We have to find what is the best way, the most pragmatic way for them to change. And yes, we partner with local organizations on the ground. We are here to support any positive efforts that they will do to improve this behavior. 
in the same time, if they don't respect their commitments, if they violate, we don't hesitate as well to come back to them to try to see what's, what happened. And if there is a blatant disrespect, we don't hesitate as well to publicly denounce this bad behavior. We have as well to make sure that it is a very, let's say, balanced uh, dialogue and negotiation with, this, with the armed groups. Okay, understood. Tell me about this last key part, which you describe as contextualization, central to um, the process of discussion. This uh, particular principle, I would like, if you don't mind, uh, trying to give another example from another continent. Contextualization. I strongly believe personally uh, to this word. I mean, we, we don't contextualize enough today, despite the fact that we are an increasingly globalized world, we tend to apply uh, generic, very generic rules. We basically try and tend to apply the same rules everywhere we are, disrespect uh, of what is really happening on the ground. Why? Because I think we don't really take the time to understand, to read, to analyze, to listen to what's going on in the very in a very place. I mean, when we talk about the conflict in the Philippines, for example, Philippines is not Manila. Philippines is, are not urban centers. You have myriad, thousands of areas that are very diverse. And I just want to give one example that will highlight how we contextualize. We try to engage with one armed group in one of the islands that are, I would say, a radical armed group, an armed group that believes that in the Philippines, yeah. yeah. An armed group that believe that the law of God is, of course, above any laws, that um, international law should not apply to them because they are from the West and they are, not, they are going to change their culture and destroy their culture. And this, and this is something that is very strong. And because of that, it was very, very difficult to talk to them because they were rejecting us for the mere fact that we want to talk about international humanitarian law which they perceived of as being Western. So international human, human rights law or international humanitarian law is a code word for Western concepts of justice. And that's what they were rejecting. That's correct, uh, which is unfortunate because if you look back into history, uh, the first, let's say, uh, rules and laws about human rights and humanitarian law are actually derivating from religious books. Uh, from the Mahavata, which is 4,000 years old. It's, in, it's a Hinduist uh, corpus of law, then to, um, to the Bible, to the Quran. I mean, many, 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 many religious books actually talk about international humanitarian law and human rights. So we always try to find this, these bridges. And this is where we talk about contextualization. So just to come back to this Philippine example, we, we discussed them together and we tried to, okay, how we are going to approach them. We cannot approach them directly. It, it will be too dangerous. And we saw actually that they were respecting and hearing a lot of Muslim scholars from their own, let's say, island or area where they were living. They were going to, to the mosque of some Muslim scholars. They were sending their, their kids to the madrasas, which are the Quranic schools of particular uh, ulama, which are the religious scholars of this area. So we decided to go and talk to these ulama, which are, uh, let's say, religious experts and scholars. And we talk to them and we say, look, we want 
to be better communicate about the need to not recruit children, the need to uh, protect women from any violation. Can, can you help us? And of course, these, these people are civilians, they are very much educated, and they say, okay, we can help you. And we had a lot of sessions. It was at night. They finished their day, their work during the day, and they came to our office. And at night, for several weeks, we had extensive discussions trying to create bridges between religious law and international humanitarian law or human rights law. We're trying to create, let's say, tr trying to see if there is any point of comparison, if we can use, uh, let's say, ex extracts from the Quran, from uh, the religious uh, hadith, that we can then use them to basically communicate our message. And this ulama helped us in packaging, is uh, in developing these messages. We made sure that for this ulama, it was acceptable, it was understood. We knew that if we would uh, have the ulama understand our message and accepting our message, we would know that after that, the armed groups would understand because they were following this ulama's teaching. And after that, the ulama basically developed with us all these uh, messages and communication campaigns, right, the right to education and to not recruit children, prohibition of sexual violence. And we basically disseminated through the madrasas, through the, the, the preachers at the Friday prayers. And after that, we saw a couple of members of armed groups trying to approach us and say, oh, that's interesting. You basically talk the same language as us we are ready to talk now to, together. That's extraordinary. So you've got um, these three key principles of ownership, localization, and contextualization. I know this probably sounds ridiculous to you, but there's a, a huge amount I feel that one can learn about your experiences, from your experiences, um, to be brought back into the general political conversations that we are having today. Palia's perspective is that we are very fractured politically, and the last US elections demonstrated that. Um, the same is true across many Western European countries. I'm in the UK, and that's the case here, as well as elsewhere. Always, we're looking at working at how one bridges the gap, how one facilitates conversations between two sides that have absolutely nothing in common. And as what I'm pulling out of your, um, your three examples is, in, sort of in translation for civilians, this idea of ownership. The armed groups that you're talking to, you're making them owners of the um the decision to abide by the uh, by the by the geneva convention you're not imposing you're suggesting you're allowing them to take ownership it's it's the opposite of patronizing it's the opposite of forced in terms of localization you're proving an element of partnership you're part of the same ally you're an ally you're you're you're, you're somehow involved in the same project as they are without subscribing to their politics you're demonstrating an engagement and commitment to their communities and the third point here is contextualization, which is that you are specifically speaking to people with their, in their own language, whether it's a religious language or a cultural one. You are not imposing external cultural norms onto their own. You're, to, you're talking about it in, in, internally for, that, for theirs. And I feel there's that, that idea of partnership, that idea of, of, um, of ownership, and that idea of, of, uh, of speaking the sa inside the same language all bears... Um, thinking about in the context of our own much more mundane political polarization too. It's very interesting because if you remove 
weapons from the armed groups you are talking to. You can, you can actually say that we have this situation in the US right now. <laughs> we have groups that are, of course, not armed. <laughs> for, not, for some of them, <laughs> I'm sure they are, they are heavily armed, that basically don't like each other. They don't, they don't speak even the, the same language. And this is the beginning of violence. And we really believe that we have to come back to the table just to discuss just to say that we disagree. And if we try to find uh, the same vocabulary, the vocabulary that is not seen by the other side as disrespectful, as foreign, as not acceptable, then we have a chance to move forward. Hisham, um, what, a, what, a, what a great place to, to, to end this. Thank you so much for sharing your story, the, the work of Geneva Call. Um, and it's been a great pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much, Tori. Thank you a lot for the, for the invitation. That was On Opinion, the Palia podcast. Check out our show notes if you'd like to dig deeper into this episode's theme and join me at palia.com to explore all the world's opinions. To stay up to date with new episodes or get further insights from our guests, Subscribe to On Opinion, the Palia podcast, wherever you listen, and follow us on social media at Ask Palia. All our links are in the show notes, and if you enjoyed this episode, please rate us and leave us a review. Thank you for listening.